0: You know those people who you meet and you instantly warm to? Well, this week's guest was exactly that kind of person. Will Butler-Adams, CEO of Brompton Bikes, has led the growth of the company for nearly 20 years. With a refreshingly down-to-earth attitude to leadership, alongside purpose sitting at the very core of this brand, his interview had me in hysterical laughter as much as it brought deeply thought-provoking moments.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going, you won't need to bring your
0: frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs, and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration.
1: Is that okay? you so I'm Will, I'm the CEO of Brompton. We are about to go for a little whiz round on the Brompton, but these two Bromptons are... The one that Holly's on is, is a bit sneaky because it's got a pocket rocket in it. It's got a little electric motor. We spent six years, about two and a half million quid, working with Williams F1 developing it. There's nothing like it in the world. And we just want to make cycling fun, because we've got to get more people out of their cars, out from under the ground, enjoying their city.
0: Here we go, then. Let's, let's go, start. let's go. Right now, I'm trying to look composed um, on a Brompton bike. We're driving around an industrial state. I'm on an electric Brompton bike. I've just found my brakes. And, yes, it's rather exciting. Come on. Oh, yeah. yes. oh my
1: goodness me. This is very fast. Will, do you do this every lunchtime or...? When I feel I need a bit of a pizzazz, you know, if the day's going a bit slow, I yeah. just skip, get on the old electric whoa, 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 whoa. and it gives me a little bit of, you know, tickles me up. Just get on a bike, it's yeah. so much fun. I'm
0: loving this.
1: Oh. Right, wing in to the left.
0: Right, wing to the left. That's been the best start for any interview. I think it's time for a cup of tea. Thank you so much for having me here today. We met about a year ago. We were on a panel together and I was so inspired by your business ethos, the way you were. So I'd love to kick off with your story, what your background was and how you came about to be the CEO of Brompton Bikes. And also, if you could, tell us a little bit about the fascinating founder of Brompton Bikes too. So...
1: We'll start with Andrew because he is the reason we have this funky bike. And went to Cambridge, hyper intelligent. Learned pretty early on that he was never going to work for anyone else because they're all too thick. Um, and he knew better than everyone else, so he had to do his own thing. Set up his first business that went belly up. His friends put money in. Um, that was in uh, sort of um, flower business. Then he carried along doing the odds and sods, and um, he 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 wanted something. It didn't exist. He saw something called a Bickerton, which was a sort of folding bike, thought that was quite cool. But of course, knowing Andrew being Andrew, he he had a far better idea because he was a walking genius. And so he spent quite a long time fiddling around, coming up with his own designs. Um, His flat that he rented, which he still rents today, is on the Cromwell Road overlooking the Brompton Oratory Church. which is a Catholic church. And he came up with this amazing design. And it was pretty cool. I mean, it is pretty cool. But he never wanted to make it. He wanted Raleigh to make it. They were making 2 million bikes a year in Nottingham. So he thought, great, they'll make it. Lucky guys, I'm going to let them know about this wonderful, amazing thing. So he wrote them a letter. You know, Raleigh, you're so lucky. I'm here. I've got this amazing design. And they said, cheers, mate. But, you know, are you off your rocker? Who's going to buy that funny thing? So they weren't interested. No one else was interested. And finally, there's a picture up there of Andrew looking pretty knackered because him and one other bloke, it took them two years to make 400 bikes. That'll take us a day and a half today. They sold them all. The people loved them. But Andrew, after two years, did his maths. And as as often people do, he was more interested in his customers and his product and slightly forgot about the maths and discovered he'd made a loss. He's like, oh, dear. So then he thought, well, I'll just stop for six months, get the 40 grand I need in 1982 to um, have the money to invest in the tooling to make these things and make a profit. It didn't take six months, it took six years. Everyone turned him down, Barclays turned him down, Midland Bank, all these other people. And finally, it was one of his customers who were so frustrated, they bought six bikes and their friends saw them and they wanted some, that they said, um, you know, this is ridiculous, I'll put the money in. A chap called Julian Verica, who really was the sort of entrepreneur, actually, who came with Andrew the Inventor to get this thing going in 1988. And, and they never looked back. And that's how it started. For my part, I was brought up in the north, was never very good on the education front. I spent a year travelling between school and uni and picked lemons in Peru for a long time and got lost in the Amazon decided I needed some sort of education because picking lemons was never going to be much fun by some quirk of fate ended up going to Newcastle uni slightly blagged my way in because my A levels <laughs> weren't good enough and I did uh, mechanical engineering um, I somehow ended up doing it with Spanish so then I really worked at uni ended up getting a first and uh, thought I'd go back to Argentina but that all went belly up and I ended up in, in, in um, Middlesbrough. Not quite the same as Buenos <laughs> Aires, but hey-ho. And found myself running chemical plants. Had a blast, actually. The, borough, the guys in the borough are brilliant, but chemical sites are a bit rough. And um, after sixes, I thought, I'm going to go and do an MBA and, with all the trendy people. And then weirdly met this guy, sat next door to him on a bus when I was down in London visiting. And he turned out to be the best friend of the inventor. And the chairman of this little company made folding bikes I'd never heard of because they hadn't got to Middlesbrough. Anyway, I was sort of interested. He said, you know, he sort of sort of didn't say there was a job, but said they were sort of interested in trying to find someone to help the inventor. And I, I just went to look around, really. Anyway, met met Andrew, went to the factory. Uh, and initially, I was just amazed that this this sort of factory existed because at uni, you're just taught best practice. No one tells you and this is worst practice. Not that it was worst practice, but it was nothing yeah. like a Nissan factory. And I thought, my God, I, I know I can do stuff here. This would yeah. be a laugh. London, all the trendy people are there. You know, I was 28. And of course, you know, there were probably more cool, exciting, funky people in London, the Middlesbrough, not disrespectful to Middlesbrough. (laughs) And um, so I thought, hey, hey, I'll do this for a couple of years and then go on and do my MBA. And then weirdly, I'm not really a city guy. And I suddenly found myself on this bike in London, having a blast. I started to get to know London, all the back streets. I went clubbing. I just rocked up on my brommy, shoved it into the cloakroom. (laughs) Then I was a teeny weeny bit tiddled and I'd zoom across London at two in the morning, loving it. I just had such fun on this bike in the city. And then I met our customers and they enjoyed it. It made a difference to their lives. And it was the bike that became addictive. What it can do for people, something so simple and so sort of dismissed made people happy. And that's so addictive. And that was, well, you know, 16, 17 years ago. And I've been at it since.
0: You can't see where we're sitting here but I'm actually surrounded by these beautiful bikes and what's interesting is apart from the bikes I think the thing I love most about your business is the driving purpose behind it. You say the greatest measure of success is how we impact society, how you want to use your business as a force of good, redesigning our towns, making us happier. You mentioned that just now. I'd love to hear you talk about this. I I know you reference Amsterdam. And as someone who grew up there, I couldn't agree more with you. What an amazing town, the way they ride their bikes and what that has done to their culture. But could you elaborate on this?
1: So it's, you know, you, you, all we can do is, is sort of lean on what we see. I've spent the last, whatever it is, however many years, just peddling around cities. We're, we're broadly an urban bike. And the funny thing is, even though we're a little blue dot... Planet Earth, that little blue dot. And we're sort of all doing the same thing increasingly. We're doing it at different rates in slightly different ways. But something that is very clear to me is that there has been massive net migration to cities in the last sort of 20 years. And how society is coping that with that differs in different parts of the world. But a consistent theme is, my observations are, this net migration to cities has not made people happy. Mm. You know, you find that people are paying a ludicrous amount of money for, for, for a little box. And they've called it a flat to make it sound better. But mm-hmm. really, it's a tiddly little box. Then they've taken on so much debt for this little box that they have to work preposterous hours. So they get up at complete sparrow fart. Then they trot along And then they're half asleep. They pick up some overpriced latte with double shot of some gunk. Then they pay money. This is actually happens in cities to go under the ground where the air is crap. And then they get shoved in this metal thing. Some people call it tube or a metro. If you're not six foot four like me, you're up somebody's armpit. Someone's spluttering on you, you know, and you're jiggling along and everyone's grumpy. And you come out the other end and you spend all day sat on your ass tapping on these little square things. And then you die. You know? <laughs> I mean that sounds pretty ropey to me. And yet the irony of it yeah, all is it, yeah. These yeah. cities have got architecture, parks, canals, yeah. Cool stuff, but we're on such a flipping, you know, treadmill, we don't even know our city at all. And that's yeah. not right. And so I'm not suggesting in any way that the little bike is gonna be the world savior, but it's gonna contribute. And it makes us a little bit happier and we can discover our cities and be a bit fitter and dump all the stuff out of our brains when we're whizzing along and we can't be farting around on our little phone and just, you know, live a little.
0: You obviously had that experience when you were at 2 a.m. a little bit tiddly on your bike coming home and you get up in the morning and you'd be on your bike again and you were discovering this. Has that been one of the the currencies that's run through your 17 years? Is that the thing yes. that is that keeps you getting up every morning, doing this job. Is that that, that, the the bigger purpose of
1: of your day job? I was peddling yesterday to a meeting by Victoria. And when I go into London, I get out, Notting Hill, and then I pedal to Victoria there. And I go right down that really nice bit where all the embassy buildings are, and then across the park. I'm always doing market research. If I see anybody on a Brompton, I just start chatting. So there's this guy, poor chap. um, He was on a two-speed S-Type, started chatting anyway you know he had bought his bike about four years before and he said and this is just not unusual it sounds so vomit worthy and corny but it's just true and he said this thing has changed my life I love it it's one of the best things I've bought you know I use it all the time I know London like the back of my hand he lives in Oxford commutes in and then cycles across London and he just he he, he loves it and it's four mm-hmm. years old. It's completely covered in mud. It's bomb-proof. And I'm like, yes, you know, that is it. That'll do yep. it. And it's not just London that I'm in, you know, LA or I'm in Spain or I'm in meeting people in Japan or I'm in Singapore. And, you know, and when you think about it, we're persuaded to buy so much dross that we don't really yeah. need. And then we the buy it all. The vacuousness of it
0: all. And, and yeah, yes. and then it all
1: goes in the ground. And, to, you know, we want to create less stuff and buy less stuff and more considered and things that last and things that add value because we can't keep just buying stuff for the sake of it.
0: I really love how you're thinking about your career and how you think about this business. I think that what I'm noticing actually more and more, especially when meeting other founders or honorary founders for this podcast, is that we're seeing a huge shift in business in capitalism. I spoke to Edward Perry recently, who's the founder of Cook, which is a B Corp um, business who is also as equally passionate about using his business to make the world a better place. And I think it's quite an exciting time now for business, this new philosophy. Maybe Brompton Bikes should become a B Corp. Have you thought about this? Are you interested in this?
1: I know B Corp well. So Paul Lindley, who founded Ella's Kitchen, is a very good friend. And they're a B Corp. And then Pucker Herbs also, you know, I'm, I'm pretty aware of it. It's definitely inspirational, but my feeling is it will come at some point and whether it's B Corp or some other thing, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is you care. You care about your staff, you care about the community, you care about the environment. We are far from perfect. We're trying our damnedest, but we're doing a million things wrong. And I bet you there's some supplier to a supplier shoving something into a stream, which would be horrendous if we knew about it. But we don't because we're just about getting to grips with our suppliers and we're starting to see our suppliers to our suppliers. So we're away from perfect. But at least we're trying our best. Mm. And I think that's... That's what customers increasingly want. They don't just want a billboard with some sexy, fake, touched-up, surreal gunk. They want to look behind that and know that it's real people and it's not just the product. It's it's the, the the integrity behind it. And the integrity is honest integrity, it's imperfect integrity, it's human integrity. And you know, and then you feel like you're not you know, because we we can't, we have to be a bit careful because we're going to bugger this little blue dot up and that would be a complete error. So, you know, and and none of us are going to do it. We've just got to contribute a teeny weeny bit. But there's plenty of things that are going on that are just totally not contributing. They're uncontributing and that's Mm. not so good.
0: I think what I find most interesting about you, and I haven't really heard any business leaders speak like this and definitely there should be more, but you're all about longevity, the long-term gain. You don't look for the silver bullet, which is so admirable, especially when we're brought up to always look for that or aspire to be that. I think personally, that's the biggest lesson that I've learned in business is that there just isn't a silver bullet. It doesn't exist. That slow and steady wins the race. And I know that your steady compound growth is what you're most proud of. It must take a huge amount of patience and vision to sort of have this philosophy. And where has that all come from?
1: All I know is that when I went, as I mentioned earlier, trotting off into South America, I got into a bit of trouble in the Amazon aged. I think I was just 19 to the point where I thought I was going to die, wrote to my parents thinking they'd find me dead. And um, anyway, it was all fine, but things did get a bit hairy. And at 19, I I was, for a period of about two weeks, I convinced, a lot of it was mental, but I convinced myself I was probably never going to get out. It wasn't like a car crash where it all comes and goes in like um, 30 seconds. This was day upon day, it bouncing around your head, thinking... About things, and what became clear was that watching neighbours with my mum on a a pretty crappy sofa, covered in dog hair, with baked beans on toast, was something that I really valued, rather than the trendy party that all that I thought was really cool. And that's not normal when you're quite young um, to have that sort of complete weird sort of redefinition of what priorities are. It's what
0: you normally would have later on in life.
1: And that stuck with me. And forgetting we've grown at about 15% a year for the last 16 or 17 years. And it hasn't been linear. There's been ups and downs. But it's about sustainable. You know, if you try and grow a company much more than that, the essence of the company is lost. Because, you know, we took on last year, we've now got about 330 staff. When I joined, there were 24 of us. And uh, we took on about 50 people last year. And that is maxing right out. You take on much more than that. You dilute the, the Brompton essence so much that no one really knows what it is. And we're not in IT, so you can't just copy and paste. And we're making stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm enjoying it. And that's fine. And we're we're proudly independent, which is important. But it's not a sort of philosophical view. It just happens to be the way it's gone along. Um, But I like it and it makes me feel secure and it allows us to have independent thought and do things we feel are right.
0: And what's also interesting is that allowing the pace of the business to be something that you almost control. So you mentioned, you know, 50 people, that would be the maximum. Well, you know, in worlds that I've been in, certainly in tech, take on 100 people, et cetera, et cetera, because they're just, they're going with the pace of the opportunity, in a way, those 17 years that you've had has allowed you almost to sort of now you know, you know, now you know, you know, grow any faster. It might benefit you in certain ways, but the wheels will come off somewhere in the in the company. And actually, if we can just withstand opportunity, withstand outside pressure, withstand those things, we will be there at the end line, whatever that end line is, whereas others who might be younger and going into the markets. And certainly that's what I see with smaller businesses, this need to grow, this need to feel that they have to take every opportunity and push it and push it. And actually what you want to say is stick to the product, stick to what you believe in, stick to what you're fascinated in and and just have faith that that's what will see you through.
1: Yes, and I think one of the other things is, the trouble is we are surrounded by media that takes the 0.1% and makes it the 90%. So it takes the example that is the absolute rarest example and splatters it everywhere. So we all think that's the normal. We all think that we're all a footballer earning 4 million quid a week, or we've got to be an overnight success or, you know, with the next amazing business that everyone talks about. But that's not normal. That's weird. That is the winning the lottery ticket. And that's not a way, you don't run a, you don't base your plans on that odds. You've got to have much better odds than that. And the other thing that we've done, which I think, particularly if, you're, if you believe in your business, if you care about it, you know, blink of an eye, 10 years zooms by. And you're far better to be a bit more patient and keep control independence and control is more important than anything else. Once you start having people, because you've had to raise money because you need to grow so fast, and you have to do it, why do you have to? Because I have to, I have to, I have to, we've got to grow, otherwise we're finished, we're not going to be able to keep up. And that's what you think, but it's probably not the reality. And if you're really doing something special, people will be patient and you will come out. And if you can control it, you you then have something very special. I mean, the businesses I admire are ones where they've retained control. And to retain control, we've self-financed everything at Brompton. We've never gone out for external finance. And that means, you know, we've got no debt. We've got a bit of cash that we've saved up. Um, We've got no weird, funny shareholders who start telling us to do stupid things that we know is tosh. And then we can do what we feel is right for our customer. Mm. And that's in the long term, Mm. that's what this is all about.
0: Are you listening to this incredible journey, thinking, I wish I could do that, but don't quite know where to start? Then I wrote a book for you. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is the ultimate small business bible, providing you with the guidance, support and insights I wish I'd had 20 years ago at the start of building my business journey with Not On The High Street. Think of me as your virtual mentor, guiding you along your journey as if I was sitting right next to you, holding your hand, recounting my own fears and failures, lessons to help you succeed on your path. Short bite-sized micro chapters filled with colour, creativity, oh, and its own product range. It really is a business book like no other. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out now. Head to holly.co slash book to buy your signed copy today. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You don't do any sort of formal advertising or marketing. So what are the ways people hear about your product and how do you reach new markets? So you're, you're not into the fads, the 1% that looks like 99%, the influencers, the, all this sort of stuff that's going on at the moment. Tell me then, is it the same sort of strategy that you have when, when you're looking at marketing or when you're looking at amplification?
1: So when we were little, we really couldn't afford it. I mean, we really could not afford it. And we had so much to do to just make the bike. The Mm -hmm. amount of energy, tooling, engineering, that everything we had really went in there. And we relied pretty much entirely on the product. And our dealers, who were our sort of quasi brand, looking after the customer such that the customer had a good experience and told others. We designed out obsolescence. We didn't design it in. We wanted the customer to have a 12-year-old bike that was beaten to bits and know that they could get spare parts and never need to buy another one. But they loved it so much that 10 of their friends had been persuaded to go and buy one. And really, fundamentally, that remains the case. But we have shifted as we've got bigger because, and I think marketing is a word I'm not too keen on because it sounds like fakeness, just the word. But there may be a load of people who would love a Brompton. It would be just what they want. It would be just make their life better but they don't even know we exist. So we have got to learn to be better at communicating. And we're we are we're not naturally good at that. We're naturally better at being engineers. So we are learning a bit, but a sort of half-page ad with some, you know, naff sort of cheesy picture is just, you know, I, 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 I see them in magazines and stuff and they really annoy me. I, so I don't want us to be doing that. That doesn't mean we don't still do stuff that makes me feel a bit embarrassed and naff because... You've got to let your team get on with it. And sometimes they, they turn up and they go, oh, well, I've done this at the other company. This is what you want me to do. And then we, and they produce this stuff. And I'm like, Who did they... guys, you don't need to do that. That's awful. You know, do you think it's <laughs> no, they really are trying good? To
0: impress you.
1: Yeah, because they, they think that's what they're meant to do because they come from all these companies where that's what you're meant to do. It's like our finance team come in and they want to go, yeah, we got them to 90 days. I'm like, well, I don't want 90 days. That's awful. What sort of supplier can survive on 90 days? We pay them at 30. If you can get them at 90, I don't care. I want them paid at 30. Because that's just being nasty and a bully.
0: It's rewiring, isn't it? So it's people just... coming into Brompton Bikes as a culture, are you rewiring people that are coming in? I mean, I'm not saying everybody, yeah, of course, yeah. but we, I'm just saying are... that's the idea that you just had on 90 days or on marketing. You know, when you've got the long-term game, yeah. you know, so many businesses don't, you know, it's the whip, it's, you know, targets, it's et cetera, mm. et cetera. How many magazines have you now placed this our yeah, product yeah. in? How have you found that? How have you re-educated people on
1: the because Brompton way? the funny way? thing is, when you forget, when you take your, your corporate brain, because it's like, ooh, I'm in my corporate world. I speak funny when I'm on the radio and I go all serious. And I pretend I'm serious because I've got some amazing title. <laughs> but actually, when you're a consumer, when you're with your friends, when you're just being normal, most of the stuff is this crap. Mm. You know, who is doing this? And then you're like, next day, you're <laughs> the person doing it. And you're in your worky mode. Like, no, no, you don't need to be like that. You can just be you when you're with us. And if it looks a bit naff and it feels a bit cheesy, don't do it. Just don't mm. do it. And, mm. But that's not normal. That's somehow we've been trained in this, this system to, to do things because it's best practice. Mm. But it's not I mean, well,
0: certainly I see that with small businesses because, you know, you've got this precious marketing money. You look to the guys that should know what they're doing. They've got whole teams, you know yeah, that, yeah. and you go and copy. And suddenly yeah, oh, it doesn't yeah. work. But when you're talking about it, you say, when you're normal and you're talking to friends and then 10 people, you convert 10 people purely from the love of a product, this amplification, this word of mouth, and certainly I found that at Nottingham High Street. Our largest marketing, the thing that worked was our product and then thus word of mouth. And, But it's, it takes courage, doesn't it? It takes that focus back into the product rather than the actual the, yes. the facade that goes around it.
1: But it's funny. I mean, we have been lucky that we got the timing just right because when, if it had been 15 years before with these, with your business and our, and our business, it would have been a lot harder because word of mouth, you know, 20 years ago was word of mouth. The lovely Literally. thing is, we hit a moment when suddenly, if your strategy was word of mouth because you really cared about the product, we hit a moment when suddenly that word of mouth hit 6,000 people because they blogged or they made a video and it wasn't just reaching the UK, it reached all over the world and people started to value. Honest integrity. And you can spend four million quid on some incredible marketing campaign and a customer can come along and saying, I've been putting this cream on my face and I still look minging and it's doing no good. I don't look anything like the woman in the advert. You know, and that undermines the entire marketing campaign yeah. in, a, in a trice. And I'm sort of really keen on that because I just think we need less untruths, more honesty mm-hmm. and yeah. And I just think and when I speak to people, everybody says, yes, yes, yes. But then somehow we haven't quite grown out of it because mm. there are these big ginormous companies just still spending you know, loads mm. on paying millions to some, you know, person who goes in, and I use this. And, and you go, but they don't use it. It's all lies, but you've fallen for it, you muppet. You know, and and yet they're still doing it and paying them gazillions.
0: But it's because we're too busy, because we have just got out of the tube and we've gone into our flats and then we've only got a few hours of our own life and then we need it to not be filled with the mundane of getting shopping and doing things. And so it's this never-ending cycle until... You, as a consumer, break it. You have your own values. Companies don't just have values. Families have values. Home life has values. And if we start to install that and actually start to become... Conscious consumers and not vacuous consumers, and actually stand up for you know what I want better meat. I'm going to the butcher. I'm going to yeah, get yeah. off the yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, and yeah. I'm not going to click it, but and better, uh, but better. And I think it's starting to happen. I actually think we're just beginning, and something you know, who knows, Brompton's going to have even the biggest surge yet to come. But I wanted to ask you something. I remember seeing Brompton bikes on the BBC W1A, which by the way is one of my most favourite programmes. What did you think? Did you know about that? No, no,
1: no. no. And it,
0: it became an no iconic idea. London product oh my God, right it was hilarious. there. Yes. I mean, did you did you see we it no along idea. with all of us when you watched that first episode? Oh, I
1: laughed my head off.
0: And and you realised that it was going to play a feature? Oh, no, no, no,
1: no, no. We had we had no idea. <laughs> I mean, and the funny thing was when it came up, I mean, I'm blissfully unaware about it. And then, you know, some people say, oh, oh. I I, I saw your bike and they were taking the, you know, taking the piss. And I'm like, what? Ooh, that sounds a bit dodgy. Oh, come on. That's hilarious. That's brilliant. And then it just it went on and on and on and it was just funnier and funnier. And then, we, then they started talking about the carbon Brompton. We don't even have a carbon, but people were where's the carbon Brompton? You know, it was just brilliant. And those things are just lucky, you know, you, yeah. you, you know as we well, you all know, life up, is about you, not just being Mr. Amazing or Mrs. Amazing or Miss Amazing. It's, there's luck and you've just got to roll with it and hope a few little bits of luck come your way. And that, and that was definitely.
0: Was that a good thing for sales?
1: Oh, come on, Humour. Fun, <laughs> sales, we love it. We're Brilliant. Brits, we like yeah. humour. Yes.
0: <laughs> it really did tickle. We, well, talking about other things here, what's refreshing about you and just sitting here with you and having our cup of tea is. Not like so many CEOs that I've met over my career, and I, I always use the line that you know the E stands for ego in CEO, and often someone who strives to be a CEO, you know, the cookie cutter that stands in line, and that's what they want to become one day, is probably not the CEO that you actually need. But I knew the second I met you, and actually the CEO actually of my first not on the high street. There's this shared um, distinct lack of ego here. You are just someone who is hugely passionate about the business that you are running. What do you think makes a good CEO or just a business leader?
1: Well, we need to remember that leaders are every single level of the business. You don't have leadership at the top. You have leadership everywhere, all the way through the business. And to me, leadership starts with Having a clear passion for where you want to go. That's the most important thing. Where are we going? What are we trying to achieve? At whatever level that might be, you know, we are going to nail this. Then it is about realizing pretty early on, and I've tried to make this the way we work at Brompton, that I'll give you an example. If you employ somebody, so I employ somebody who um, knows what a Raspberry Pi is which I thought was a cake you could eat, and, um, and understands Python, which I thought was a snake. So one of them is some mini computer and the other one is some coding language. So I need those skills to, to, to get us where I want to go. So I go out and I recruit and I put a job description out. Somebody has all this knowledge I don't have. So when that person rocks up and they say to me, so what do you want me to do? I look at them like a, they're a complete frog. And I say, well... Well, there's no point asking me that, mate. I haven't got a flipping clue. That's why I employed you, you muppet. I've got no idea what I want you to do. I just know that I want to get there. Now, what you need to do is tell me what you need to get us there. So my job, having decided where we're going, is to work for my staff to give them the ability for, to fulfill their potential to help us get there. But it is in no way to march around telling people what to do because I haven't got a clue. They've got the knowledge. And that, has to happen at every level in the organization. That's, that's relatively easy. It's a bit weird, but relatively easy from a management sort of perspective. But in a manufacturing perspective, mm. it's been really hard because there's a tradition of, you know, I'm gaffer. You know, you do what you're told because around here, I know what's going on. And, you know, and that's not what we want. We want... You know, empowering our people because they're doing it. Of course, they know what's better. They've been doing it for eight hours, and you know they're doing it in their sleep, and that's hard because it's not normal. And you need to be vulnerable. You need to give away the the, the shining light because I'm not measured on me. I'm measured on all. Mm-hmm. So the way I have success is by everyone feeling like they were the one. They're the shining mm-hmm. star. Mm. And give up your stars and sprinkle them over everybody else so that they can all be stars. And then, of course, we will shine. But, you know, again, it's 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 fairly obvious, but maybe not normal.
0: I don't think it is normal. From our brief moments on that panel, I knew that you were pretty special. Tell me, do you build that into the culture of this organisation? Because as you said, that is a quite a difficult different way of looking at things when you're bringing in external people there's a way that people are traditionally taught tell me about how you've been able to let people feel empowered by this
1: so the tone of the company is set by the ceo to me i ha- i have to deliberately be ineffectual in some ispe- in some respects If I'm too good, if I'm too strong, then I don't need help. Then people don't feel like they can really lead themselves. So I'm very passionate. I'm very clear on where we want to go. If people ask for direction, I'm very clear. But I virtually make it my business to come across as, as like I don't know and I need help. And actually, I do need quite a lot of help, to be fair. But, but, but it's something like that. And then, then how do you bring that further down the organisation? Mm. So I, I am an engineer by background and I spend my time mostly looking over the business. But it's very important to quite regularly go very deep mm-hmm. in your organisation in different areas and choose a particular thread. And follow it right to the end so that your team know you care about the detail. And when you do that, you need to remind people, remind your staff and and just be blindingly obvious about how they manage, how they engage with their team. What are their meetings like? Anyone, I had one of my guys who's a temp, he's been with us for three months. I was having my lunch today and he was telling me about something that was worrying him. You know, and that's exactly what I want. If a temp who's been here for three months knows I'm the CEO and can sit down and and we're just munching our lunch and he can chat to me, Mm. then that's one little thing that I will follow. That's a little thread that I will follow. A customer sends me something from Japan on WeChat, and that's a little thread, and I will follow it right to the end and, and care about that detail. And that means a huge amount to the staff. And, and it sets a tone.
0: It really, really does. I know you believe in harnessing innovation. And I remember hearing you talk about ways in which you sort of spark this within your team. I recall this conversation. I've told many people in my office, you made me laugh so much because you were telling me a story where you, did you suddenly bring out a lot of pot plants or something in your office? or
1: The funny thing is, we as human beings are creatures of habit we can't help it. We we like habit as children. They like routine, and we keep going. Oh, well, we've got to get your ch- your baby into a routine. All this stuff. We forget. We're flipping grown ups. We like routine. Mm-hmm. You know, what time do you set your alarm? I said, Oh, I set my alarm at, at at quarter past six. And you have you go downstairs. You brush your teeth. You have a pee. You know. You put the kettle on. It's all do 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 do, and um, that's no good for innovation. And you know, one example was a friend of mine. He he does lots of hanging. Baskets, so around London and all around the southeast, all those lovely hanging baskets, that is what he does. So we did a swapsy. I'm a great believer in swapsies. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that. I'm not sure that was covered in the whatnot. <laughs> and uh, anyway, who cares? We did a swapsie. It's tiddly. So what we did was we swapped some of his plants for a Brommy and we got six ginormous sort of trees. And then, of course, everybody came in the next day and there were trees on the factory floor. <laughs> and that freaked them out. And it makes them look at them, and oh, ooh, you know what's how weird is this? And I just feel that as a CEO, as a leader, you need your job is to disrupt. Your mm. job is to have one a couple of belts like Rambo with little grenades on them, and every time everyone's getting into their little routine and they're all think lighter, you pull off a little, boom, ooh, everyone's running around, you know, and that's when things happen. Once businesses get too cozy. It's, it stifles innovation because we're in our little rut and
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: not good. So you've got to keep, people think their job as a leader is to create order. Don't mm-hmm. worry about that. Everybody loves order. They can't mm-hmm. wait to get more mm-hmm. order. Our mm-hmm. role as a leader is to create disorder, to keep people doing things outside of their comfort zone and they're feeling a little bit on edge. And then suddenly new things come and you need to be continually causing trouble. You know, I am always causing trouble and it's a known fact, but it's, again, I, I do it slightly for fun, but it's very serious. I'm doing it deliberately to try and tease out New ideas to challenge everybody and 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 it 's just got to you 've got to be permanently like a boat that 's really sailing hard it 's creaking it 's right on the edge you go a bit further the mast will snap but you want to be humming you want to be creaking you want to be stretching and and you 're in the doldrums floating about that 's useless
0: something I 'm completely also passionate about is helping as many people start a business as possible and secure as much manufacturing and craftsmanship in the UK you and Pashley, am I right in saying mm-hmm. this, are the only bike manufacturers in the UK and you make every single piece of the bikes, but you're definitely one of the strongest British brands out there. I had the pleasure of interviewing Julie Dean from the Cambridge mm-hmm. Satchel Company too, who's also a fantastic example. With lots of British brands outsourcing overseas and now we're hearing all the HQs moving out of the UK, how are you navigating these uncertain terms? I read recently that you've stockpiled a million pounds worth of parts in case of a hard Brexit. And I just ask you this, so I think it will be helpful for other people to hear your views and just advice about feeling, you know, bloody nervous and unsure on the future. How are you navigating this?
1: So don't give a stuff about that is my really very, very strong piece of advice. It's all distracting drivel. The thing that matters is your customer. The thing that matters are the things you're in control of, your staff, how you inspire them, the innovation that you're coming up with. Everything that you're in control of is going to be the make or break of your business. The something that you're not in control of is something you manage, FX paperwork, that's just boring stuff. Okay, it might swing you this way or that way, plus or minus a few percent, but that's not going to make or break your business. You are going to make or break your business, your staff, your ideas, your customer service. And there's so much room for doing great stuff in that area the other stuff, just deal with it as it comes. And we had Greek contagion. We had the pound dropping over here. We, Those things come and go like days of the week, and they're the latest fad. But they're nothing to get distracted about. Focus on your customer, your staff, everything that you're in control of, and that will be your success.
0: And the Made in Britain part, this stamp, you know, back in the day, you know, Made in Britain, was this exportable, top-grade gold seal. Is this something that you believe in strongly?
1: Well, funnily enough, no. I believe in producing something that is just fantastic value, that is delightful, that is gorgeous. I believe strongly that the only way we can do that, the best way we can do that, is to do it ourselves. And so I'm obsessed with doing the best. And the best means I'm not going to let someone else do it because, you know, no one can do it better than us. And we care more than anybody else. And it's flipping difficult. So I'm not going to outsource that key element. I think the overdoing the union, Jack, is dangerous because in some way you may go, well, you know, oh, it's a premium because it's British. No, no, no. It, it, it it's a premium because it's the best value it's the best i'm I'm outperforming i'll take on anybody anywhere in the world mm-hmm. you know that that for us the union Jack's just hidden, and that's right. a little cherry on the top and you go, oh my gosh, and they're making it they're actually making it in London. How cool is that but that shouldn't be the reason somebody feels they have to pay ten percent more or, or we are going to be you know, pound for pound, line for line, better value, better quality, better service, better everything than anyone else in the world. And the way we do that is by caring for it and doing it ourselves. That's why we're doing it here, because it will deliver the best outcome for the customer.
0: That's interesting. And what's what's in the future for Brompton Bikes? Apart from lots of town planning, townscapes, what is it outside of just the bike? What, can you tell me about that?
1: So, We um, have made about half a million bikes so far. Most of those are still being used um, because the Brompton has pretty good secondhand value. But, you know, we have a city, which is London, has nominally about 10 million people. Currently cycling in London is about 4%, but let's make the maths easy and say 5%. So that's 500,000 people are what you might call cyclists. We've sold in London about 125,000 bikes. So maybe 15 to 20% of the bikes in London that are being used regularly are our bikes. That's one city in the world. The world is a little blue dot, but it's got more than one city, lots of cities. And governments are encouraging people to do more exercise. The thing that's going to really do us in is mental and physical health coming from this net migration to cities. So we need to get people more active and activity... You know, it's no good joining a gym and who's got time for that? And then you get on a bike and go nowhere. I mean, that's about as mad as some of the other stuff (laughs) we're up to. You know, get on a bike and go somewhere. I think governments will try and encourage people and have to, because otherwise our dear NHS will just sink under the incoming problems it's got. So we've got to change something. So, you know, I I just see that our priority is to deliver against that challenge. You know, get London from 4% to 8% get LA from 2% to 6%, get Korea from 1% to 4%. And to do that, we need to create... Cool, useful products. I mean, we've spent six years with Williams, the fast car people, developing our electric drive. Really, really difficult. It cost us two and a half million quid of our savings. It was quite hairy. We, we, we. It got a bit scary, but we did it because we believe there's a product in there that's useful that people might like, and we'll take a risk to, to to create it. And we're doing some other awesome stuff that is coming down the pipeline, which is which is useful. So our role really is to try and design, create, and develop products that people want and will use. And we want to talk not to cyclists, because in London, cyclists, as I said, are 4%. But 99% of people know how to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. So the 95% who are not cyclists, but know how to ride a bike, what are they? They're the guys we want to (laughs) speak to. We want to get back in, you know, get them back on the bike and have some fun. And so we have got to learn to communicate. We've got to learn to communicate to those people and say, you're nuts. You're nuts that's no good. You should be getting back on a bike. And if it's pissing with rain and nasty, then don't ride a bike. But it isn't like that most of the time. But it's pretty much, you know, we need to get people more active and having more fun whizzing about their cities.
0: And whizzing about these cities with some of your collaborations. I love when brands with similar values team up. I love the one you did with the Cambridge Satchel Company yeah. and Barber as well. Yeah. Do you have any favorite bikes or collaborations? And do you have a and on a second point is do you have any dream collaborations?
1: People think that things are strategic, clever some amazing (laughs) brains come up with this thing. It's nothing like that at all. You know, we did it with Cambridge Satchel Company because I met Julie and she's nuts and it's fun. And we finally got round to saying, we've got to do this, let's do it. And uh, we got together with Barbara because we, you know, it's sort of been there. And we ended up, luckily one of our team met them and then we did it. And and that was brilliant for us, particularly in America. It it was about people becoming aware that we even existed. So, our collaborations are fun, and they tend to be based upon meeting people we like. Uh, it's totally unstrategic, and I, I don't really have any sort of major ones because I slightly like the idea that they just mu- they just float in. Mm. I mean, we we I met probably the most successful collaboration we've done is with David Miller, who's a cyclist. Now, I met him at a dinner, and I was. I had no idea. I don't even know. If, I don't watch much of sport. And uh, I, I certainly don't watch guys wearing very tight outfits, you know, beasting themselves <laughs> over the mountains in France. Didn't know the first thing about Tour de France. And I sat next to this guy. He was so flipping modest. He didn't really even let on that he was some ex. You know, and I just waffled on about Brompton and how amazing it was. And he sat there nodding his head. And uh, anyway, it turns out I ended up vlogging his mum, a Bromie. Then he used it when he came to London. And then he thought it was good. And then he invited me some hobnobby thing. And then I sat down there and realised he was this complete legend. And um, no contracts. You know, we went to Brindista, some sherry place, and ate some tapas, drank some sherry, came up with a plan. And he's done really cool stuff. And he's he's talking to a new audience because we were like, we had all these people who wear you know, the tight outfits at the weekend and get on their two and a half thousand carbon bikes, but then they'd get in a cab during the week because, you know, they, the Brompton isn't a serious bike. And like, that's like this, it's nearly as mad as standing in a gym, pedaling, going nowhere. I mean, you're out there at the weekend, but you don't do it during the week. And he's done a brilliant job saying to the guys, okay, you know, it's got little wheels, but it's super cool. So, you know, these things come along. And again, if you're desperate oh my God, what are we doing this year? What's our collaboration? We must have one. It's sort of pushed, it's forced, it's Mm. fake. And Mm. you've got to go with the flow. it
0: it loses its power, doesn't it? Because actually collaboration should happen when two brands, two people get together and it's just made for each other. This is absolutely you should do it. Whereas when it becomes a marketing line and it's like, you know, how much are we spending on collaborations this year? And you're like, oh gosh, no, that's not the point. You know, We're coming to the end of this podcast. I definitely could talk forever um, to you. But before you get back to creating us a happier bicycle powered future, I use the analogy that running a business is like being on an epic roller coaster, actually an epic electric Brompton bike. What has been your proudest moment so far, your greatest high on this roller coaster?
1: There are two highs and I experience it regularly, every day, nearly. One is every time I walk into the factory because we were very small and You know, we've got a lot of people, many of whom I know very well because they've been here for a very long time. And I never get bored of just walking in to the company because all this talent is just off the chart. And the other is, as I described earlier, just meeting, seeing, anonymously watching customers whizzing past on their bikes. I mean, it's just, you know, addictive and it's never going to get boring. And, you know, we need to just do a bit more of it.
0: And a low? Is there one that stands out?
1: Do you know what? I, I, I have a lot of little lows. There are setbacks all the time. But actually, you know, unless there is some health crisis with my staff or an incident or something with my family that's serious, the rest of it is not serious. We're Mm. making bikes. Get a grip. You know, my staff sometimes are all, guys, chill out. There is this, we're making, we're fiddling around making bikes. People are getting shot to bits in Syria. There's nasty Mm. shit going on in the world. Mm. Don't take this too seriously. It is not serious. Mm. We're just here doing our best, trying our best to make people a little bit happier. That's Mm. it. And... You know, we've got to de-seriousify, de-professionalise all this sort of super stressful. It's tosh. So, broadly speaking, every time I rock up, my quip line is "Another day in paradise" because it is. Yeah. Here we are, another day to have fun.
0: Something else I ask: if you could personally recommend someone that might have inspired you, someone that you feel would be wonderful to interview.
1: So, somebody who I who I sort of respect is Mr. Warren Buffett. And I was given his book. I, a friend of mine at uni was obsessed with sort of business and stuff, and I was doing engineering. And he told me to take a student loan out and buy some, some Berkshire Hathaway shares as a student. That I got obviously B shares we're talking about here, if you know anything about Berkshire Hathaway. And I bought two shares. They cost me about 600 quid. And, uh, and I read Buffettology. And His whole thing was, and and somehow the city didn't like him because they were trading and moving here and skipping this way and running that way. And he was just believed in it, believed in the companies and was a long-term guy. And everything about his books is about compound growth, the power of compound growth. Yeah. And I think, you know, he's an interesting guy. He is obviously predictable because obviously he's held up high, but, you know, he's, Very modest. He goes to work in his same old car and picks up his um, breakfast burger from McDonald's for which he's a large shareholder. But, you know, it's a lost ethos Mm. um, of of long term patient capital and sticking with it and not becoming some mega ego, which, as you said a bit earlier, I just find not my bag.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Will. It has been really inspiring, but actually mostly very refreshing. And your enthusiasm is infectious. I love your business philosophies, your leadership style. And I think so many people have taken so much away from what you've said today. I love it when I meet energetic people who question the status quo, especially when it comes to changing the world to be a happier place. And certainly, you've made me tremendously happy today but this is the time now i hand over and i know you've prepared a letter to your younger self so i'd like to say over to you will
1: well this was some challenge i must say and i didn't i probably should have known i was having to do this ages ago but i didn't um if i did i didn't read it so it was a bit of a last minute -er. so this is this was a letter to myself to be opened in May 1990, which is a month when I was 16, which is important because I was trying to pitch it at a certain age, not too late. So I say, dear Will, you are opening this letter with a world of excitement in front of you. And I'm writing this letter with a world of excitement in front of me. Only I'm 30 years further down the track. So I hope to share a little insight into my learnings. Number one, which you already know, sport is not everything. It's not even number one, number two, or number three. Following the crowd is tempting, but stick with spending time with those you like, find interesting, and are interested in the real you. Cool people on reflection are rather boring, as they do the same as everyone else, listen to the same music, wear the same clothes. The really cool people are a bit different, follow their own path because they believe in it. You have no idea what you're going to do. Don't worry about that. No one really knows what they want to do. Just have a go at everything you can. And if you don't like it, move on. And if you find something you love, immerse yourself in it. Don't worry too much about these exams. Give them your best shot. But really, your friends, your adventures, experience, enthusiasm are far more important. Be quietly determined Life is unfair. Don't wallow in self-pity. If you want something, go and get it. Your future is determined by you. Rules are there for guidance, but not to be followed. You have to experiment, take risks, make mistakes. I've become an expert in mistakes and through them keep learning. This all sounds a bit like preaching, but I'm just cramming in as many pointers as possible. I suppose the crystallization of my reflections is that life is short. Time is precious. I'm 45 now with a fair wind about halfway along on this wonderful journey of life. But I know already that there is nowhere near enough time left to do all the things I want to do, not enough spring mornings to see the frost on the snowdrops or lazy summer afternoons mucking about at home. So I find myself impatient to get things done, to spend time with people I value and have a desire to contribute to this little blue planet of ours as much as possible before I'm snuffed out. Best of British will. P.S. You won't believe it you're married with three daughters. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh I try not cry in each one but I just get this point where I meet people like you who if it wasn't for this podcast I wouldn't be meeting you again and I get to sit with someone who is challenging everything that we sort of seem to think we have to know when we're a small business or we're growing you challenge it and yet you've made it seem like We can all challenge it. We should all be empowered to not follow rules. We should be empowered to take life as it goes. Say Eureka when you walk into your office that this is another day in paradise to sit on a Brompton bike as you made me do with wind in my hair and say, isn't this great? And that's just something that will stay with me. And I've got such respect for you and this company. And I'm I'm converted. That word of mouth <laughs> worked today.
1: Yippee. Yippee.
0: So thank you, Will. Thank my you pleasure. for being you. If you've enjoyed this episode with Will, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Sir John Timpson, CBE, owner and chairman of Timpson. You can find any of our past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at
1: holly.co.